Okay, fuckers. What's going on, y'all? Um, let me tell you what's going on over here right quick. You know those times when you say, um, write and record an episode, pushing yourself to get it done so you can then allow yourself the honor of taking care of any of your own needs, as we've been discussing. And then that recording actually goes really well. You feel like you're hitting your stride again for the first time in a long time. You hang up your hat satisfactorily, and you go out for a walk in the fucking woods, calling it all a success. And then you release that episode that felt so right, and hear from the audience, all they got from the recording was... As if the Halloween spirits possessing my body were spewing forth from my teeth for 40 minutes straight. So then you get to redo the whole thing and try again. No, that hasn't happened to you. Well, that is what happened to me this past week. And I'm sorry for the fake out on the release yesterday and the unpleasant poltergeist action that met your ears if you tried to listen to it yesterday. Um, here's proof of my proclivity for recording once through and never listening back to my own voice. It has earned me the loss of my Saturday afternoon. Now let's try this all again. Here we go. My fuckers. Hey there. Um, on to our real business for today. We're talking about what not to say to people if you don't want to have a big fucking interpersonal explosion on your hands or don't want to permanently mar the relationship with some insensitive, unthoughtful, reactionary garbage flowing from your teeth region. In other words, we're returning to the nonviolent communication discussion to talk about the specific impacts of various words, approaches, conversational tones, and attempts at connecting that often go awry. Just in time for the holidays, so hopefully the days and weeks surrounding those landmine events are a little less tenuous for all of us. Now, you know, 2023 has been all about relationships on this platform, and although we have ambivalent feelings about our families in a lot of cases, the question is still, do you want to continue the same conflictual shit patterns with them, as always? Do you want to pass that stress onto everyone else around you? Do you want to be able to break away from them completely to avoid all of that by going the no-contact route? Or do you simply want to be able to exist in their presence, as fucking necessary, without a nuclear bomb going off? Or, secret, extra option, does it not really matter what you want? You just need to get through these next two months without your head collapsing in on itself, however possible. Well, regardless, Nonviolent communication can make that plight easier for you. By using the four-step process for communicating directly, yet intimately, as we've been discussing. 
by keeping the root of our misery in mind, our many, many deprived needs, and their tendency to become unpleasant emotions that we then fling onto others as we seek an explanation. And today, we're going to learn about tapping into these 10 phrases that no one benefits from using in the process of a vulnerable conversation. But yet, oh, how we do anyways. So the idea here is by recognizing your own tendency to possibly use these conversational approaches, you can curb the accidental replay of interpersonal drama that these things will bring to the table. And by recognizing why people around you might utilize these tactics, often, I believe, mindlessly and sort of by accident, you can possibly also have a healthier reaction to them within your own system. I.e., you can notice that they just said one of these 10 outlawed phrases. Recall that it's probably not a sign of personal attack against you, but a sign of personal ineptitude within their own brain. You can feel those outraged feelings, but also have the mind not to push that nuclear button, which you would later only regret after everyone decided you were the asshole for having feelings about the careless nonsense that was thrown your way. Sounds helpful? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that it'll be helpful. So today I have for you 10 responsive phrases slash conversational approaches that according to the nonviolent communication experts, Marshall Rosenberg and his friend Holly Humphrey, are not helpful when they land upon the ears of a communication partner. They are advising, one-upping, educating, consoling, storytelling, shutting down, sympathizing, interrogating, explaining, and correcting. And we're going to go through each of those 10 no-nos, give you the corresponding phrases that often go along with them, and give a pretty brief yet strangely detailed breakdown of each one from both the receiving and giving perspectives. So, lot to do today. It's a long episode. Let's get started for the second time around. All right, let's set this up. So you or someone else uses the four-step nonviolent communication process to get their emotions and needs in order. You or they go to another human being and make their disclosure. Perhaps there's a request inside of that disclosure for help from the other party in order to get some needs met. The whole thing is difficult, it is confronting, it takes a lot of courage and something we don't really have, optimistic hope that it will all work out and be worthwhile. And in response, the other person goes into the mode of, number one, 
advising, as in, I think you should, or how come you didn't? The message received from this? Oh, okay then, so it's my fault. If you're being told, the answer is simple. It's this. You aren't receiving emotional validation or connection, which is what you were probably looking for on some level. Instead, the issue is being boiled down to, yeah, duh, nuts and bolts, and then you're being directed to start wrenching. P.S. also asked why you haven't started wrenching already, and please don't even get me started on the word should being included here. I have railed on it many times before. It is my least favorite word in the English language. Now, why do people do this? They have this approach that completely shuts down their conversational partner and gives them the idea that they are the cause of their own issues and those issues are minuscule. Well, people do this because they don't want or they cannot empathize with you. They don't have cognitive or emotional space to offer and or cannot be bothered to create that space. So they thoughtlessly toss a fix at you, probably one that just jumped to the forefront of their mind, in an attempt to fix the problem for everyone as easily as possible. You resolve your issue, which also means you go away to do that work, and that means they don't have to deal with the emotional or need-based thing that you were bringing to them anymore, which is probably also a way or two that they neglect themselves in their emotions and their needs. So therefore, they don't want to hear about your problem because they don't have the capacity to handle it even on their own in their own case. Therefore, they treat you the way that they treat them. They cut out the emotions and they go into just deal with it territory from this forced protective part of their programming that says, this is how you survive. One that probably causes them to be someone who just moves forward no matter what in life but therefore has these deep wells of undealt with pain that they carry. So therefore, again, they have no empathy or emotional connection to offer you, and they remove that from whatever disclosure you just brought to them. It's, uh, it's kind of sad, right? But also, don't advise people. It insults them by reducing their issue to a simple matter. The word should implies guilt, and the whole thing shuts their emotional experience down. Great. Moving on. Number two, one-upping. As in, that's nothing. Wait till you hear what happened to me. So this approach tells the receiving party your experience doesn't matter because of mine, which is problematic for far more reasons than we can go into here. But here's some of them. It is abusive, first of all, 
telling anyone that their perceptions don't matter in comparison to others. That's telling them they are lesser. And it also misses the entire theory of mind, secondly. So look, hey, um, if something is significant to a brain, it is significant to that brain, even if it seems insignificant to you and your brain. It really doesn't matter. Different animals, different electrified jello molds in the skull, different experiences and perceptions of those experiences, right? You can't really compare events across two different brains because it does not measure the impact of those events on those brains, and that's all that matters. So why do people do this? Well, I think most of the human race really does lack a solid grasp on theory of mind. Go ahead, everyone, and uh, Google it just to refresh yourself on the fact that different people have different perceptions and equally rich internal worlds. We also do believe that telling our stories changes the perspectives of the people around us, which have been built on their own stories. Which, I mean, short of being like a charismatic cult leader, really isn't the case. It's difficult to convince a brain to let go of all of its own experiences and instead pay attention to only yours as the only thing that matters. And also, I think some folks have been taught that this is how you connect with other people. You swap stories. You try to prove yourself superior. That's how friendship works. By brutal force, controlling the presentation of your ego, and intimidating comparisons back and forth. Well, that may actually be the case for some families, maybe a lot of families, but not for the rest of the world. Don't be a one-upper. Let people have their experience and receive connection around it too. Next. Number three, educating. As in, do you know what that is? Do you know what that means? This could turn into a very positive experience for you if you just. Mm, yes, this is the one I struggle with most in tandem with advising, I think. The intentions are good, but the execution is where things fail. So educating says to the other person, oh, oh no, don't feel about this from your experience. Just look at it from my informed view and here's what you should see and do instead. So again, it skips over the vulnerable, intimate connection part and flips into practical steps and attempts at forcing mental reframes, which again, just does not work the way that we hope it would. One brain usually isn't instantaneously relieved by hearing the logical comprehension of an issue via another. Oh, but we try, right? So why do people do this? Like I said, 
I think it's an honest attempt to try to help in most cases. You feel uncomfortable. You can't be as emotional as this person seems to want you to be. And you think that you know something relevant that could circumvent that whole issue. So let's just inform them. But just like advising, it skips over the emotions and tries to shove easy answers down someone else's prefrontal cortex. So if you're inclined to share knowledge that has helped you in the past, as I am, just remember, first the person needs to be seen in their present so that they have the capacity to accept your logical reasoning. And from there, you can just ask if they want to hear what you have learned already. Once the emotions have died down, right? Right. Okay, moving on. Number four, consoling. As in, oh, it wasn't your fault. You did the best that you could. Bleh. I don't know about you, but when I hear this, I hear bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Um, first of all, I don't really believe in fault or blame in 99% of cases. It's not really how the world works. So that's not what's on my mind. Therefore, don't put it on my mind. Secondly, something not being my fault doesn't make me feel better. It makes me feel less in control, which is frightening. Trauma problems, right? Yeah. Third of all, you don't know. <laughs> I just told you like a 20 second rundown of an experience because I believe that I need to speak to my experiences as quickly as possible to not burden others. And you say, it's not on you. You did your best. Huh? Where is that assessment coming from? Because I promise you, you're missing a lot of details that I have been obsessively analyzing. Did I do my best? Because that's what's on my mind. Was I in alignment in my actions and my brain? And I guess that heart thing too. And there's usually a reason or two causing me to doubt it or to say no. So you rolling in here and saying, hey, don't even worry about it. You did great. Again, feels like a whole lot of bullshit. Now, people do this to be comforting. And I think there are plenty of folks who do believe in blame and fault and therefore are thrilled to live a life in which they manage to dodge all of it. That is what is important to them. So yeah, therefore this is what they would want to hear for that shallow, surface-level, human-validated relief. Therefore, they give it out to others, or they've been trained to do it for others who have that mindset. And also, I think that consoling is a really cheap way to pass over the problem without understanding the mental and emotional weight of all of it fully. Just like the past examples, it's a protective measure to just say, no, no, you're fine, don't worry about it, because then you yourself don't 
actually have to think through all of it. So for me, this is sort of like when your dog dies versus when someone else's dog dies. It's easy to say, look, dogs die early and it's unfair, but it's not your fault. You'll get a new one who you will love dearly as well. It's, it's an okay thing. Look, that doesn't really hit the mark as the person inside the experience, but from outside of the experience, from that other perspective, none of it is wrong. It is kind of a fact of life sort of issue, right? Dogs die too early. It is no one's fault. That is what we know to be true and just want you to feel as little about it as we can not being the person experiencing the loss. But it doesn't work that way. So don't unfault people right out of the gate and pat them on the head for doing their best. It's a very juvenile targeted approach to comforting someone, you know? We aren't toddlers anymore. It does not pacify a lot of us in that way. Um, Bible thumpers and other similarly minded people, possibly excluded. In which case, repent, it's not your fault, and Jesus accepts you, you are fine. Pat, pat, pat on your head. All right, maybe lost some listeners with that one. Continuing, we have number five storytelling as in oh really that reminds me of the time that file this one alongside one-upping am i right it's the same sort of approach with the same effect on the receiver someone ripping the mic out of your hand and dominating the conversation that wasn't intended to be about them. So you really hear that you aren't worth listening to and your experience, once again, doesn't matter, especially in the context of other people's experiences. Now, why do people do this? I think, number one, it's an attempt at empathizing and educating through a backdoor means, which can be helpful if done with the right timing. Straight out the gates, uh, not usually the right timing. Your wisdom will not be received. The message that will be received is, okay, I guess you're just talking now. Number two, people have been rigidly programmed to believe that conversation has to be this flow of equal parts back and forth with immediate responses. So their reply to your disclosure is just that, a response immediately to fill the silence and in their mind to keep the conversational flow going. Just in your mind, it's like a record scratching and the end of any easy communicative progress. You're probably gonna stop speaking and that's that. Storytelling takes the focus off the person who needs and requested it and did all of the inner work in order to recognize their needs and request them. 
It teaches them not to bother doing that work, not to bother trying to talk to you anymore, because clearly their words and their experience have no place here. Rolling on. Number six, shutting down, as in, cheer up, don't feel so bad, don't think about it that way. Yeah, this is an easy one to shit all over, right? Telling someone how not to think or feel does not end the way that they think or feel. It teaches them to think and feel poorly about how they already thought and felt poorly. AKA, it creates shame around what they were already suffering with and instructs them to try repression as a solution. Fucking great. That is super helpful. Now, people do this because they want you to try and see and feel things the way that they do because it's easier because they aren't in your situation. So if you could simply adopt their safe and comfortable detachment from the situation like they are, everything would be fixed. P.S. Very good chance that people who do this are master repressors. They just don't think or feel about things that are unpleasant. And they think avoidance and numbing could really help you out a great deal too. And so here we are learning about having needs and feelings as grown ass adults because we were raised by these ass goblins. Yeah, yeah, right, it's the whole problem. Don't tell people to not feel or think the way that they feel or think. And also, don't accept this shit if anyone does it to you. Chronic self-repression is a really good portion of the continued trauma aftermath that all of us are dealing with. Feel your damn feelings, fucker. They aren't wrong. And don't shame people for their own. All right, moving right along. Number seven, sympathizing. As in, oh, that is awful. You poor thing. Yeah, similar to consoling, bitch, don't tell me shit you don't know about. And definitely don't project your own sad, victimy mindset onto me. All right? Yeah, telling people they should feel bad the opposite of what we just discussed in the prior shutting down example, is also damaging. It's like building up their emotion. Maybe they weren't in a state of recognized utter suffering when they came to you with this conversation. But guess what? Now they are because you just informed them that you pity them. And maybe they should feel worse than they were. How disempowering and defeating. And yet, it is addictive for a lot of us to have our misery seen, because in general, it isn't. And that's not an accident. That's why this response exists, because it's effective. When people do this, they're complicit emotional manipulators and emotional abusees, is my guess. 
They act as the codependent echo chambers to people who do want to be told. Oh, poor you. So that response comes up instinctively for them. And they may enjoy that pity themselves. Perhaps they are a fan of feigning and they benefit from appearing helpless. So they sort of assume that everyone else enjoys that the same. Or, alternatively, they may have exiled parts that no one ever recognizes the enduring pain of, and those parts leap up to the forefront to offer you suffering validation that they actually long for. So they could be speaking to your pain in the way that they wish anyone had spoken to theirs. They might be projecting their own needs upon you. But either way, the approach isn't helpful. It teaches us to move backwards in the entire nonviolent communication process, right? We move back into our shitty emotions and evaluations rather than moving forward with validation, empathy, and a collaborative behavioral resolution. So sympathizing might actually invite or inspire us to feel worse after our disclosure. And even more dangerously, it might enmesh us with someone who educates us on our own victimhood. If they see that pain and speak to it in a way that we aren't accustomed to, it can create a very false sense of closeness and nurturing, which can get very dangerous. Of course, that's if we don't explode at their suggestion of victimhood first. Kind of depends on where you're starting from. But regardless, yikes. Sympathizing, not helpful, different from empathizing, and I think that needs to be noted. All right, onward we go. Number eight, a very unsympathetic response interrogating, as in, when did this happen? What do you mean? When did this all begin? Look, asking clarifying questions after a disclosure or a nonviolent request, great, demonstrates interest and improves mutual understanding. Asking a billion questions in rapid succession about various minute details of what was said probably in kind of an angsty and uppity tone. No, not great. Overwhelming and emotionally flooding. Feels like an attack and a lot of accusation rather than an attempt at comprehension. So why does this happen? Why do people interrogate? Well, back to that all not having emotions or emotional space problem. People don't hear or know how to deal with the feeling aspect of what they are hearing. So they launch into additional evidence collection, looking for greater understanding to force out an opinion and a solution. They don't have a bad intention necessarily, but again, the execution sucks. It is forced, it is rapid, and it is agitating. Plus, there's an air of judgment included in their investigation, 
as though they're evaluating us and the situation to determine if our concern is worth their time or not, if someone is at fault or not, which doesn't help the discloser whatsoever. It feels like they're looking for a direction to point their finger. So ask questions, sure, but do it in a calm, measured, organic way that unfolds as the conversation does. Do not rush it. And if you do have a bunch of questions, frame it that way. Ask permission to ask your questions. Don't interrogate. People will not continue speaking to you if every conversation becomes a waterboarding session that suggests that they deserve unpleasant consequences. Next, number nine, explaining. I would have called, but, oh, as the receiver, maybe nothing is more discombobulating and frustrating, right? No one needs your undermining explanation getting mixed in with their emotional and need-based vulnerability. It rips the rug out from what they were prepared to express, which took work to put together. And it demands that they revise everything according to your perspective right now, in this moment. And that is the purpose of this explaining tactic, isn't it? It's to say, look, hey, I hear you saying that you are upset about this. But let me just tell you why you shouldn't be if we could back this train up a few miles and start again with new facts under your belt from where I stand. Which, like in some ways, is valid, right? Everyone wants to be understood and seen accurately, and it is their right to have that happen. But also, that train in question has left the station. They have had their perceptions from their viewpoint. The feelings have already been felt and even named, claimed, and spoken to. So now all of those things need to be addressed before any alternative facts are going to allow the old logical comprehension and integration department to give even a single shit about what you are saying in order to rebalance those feelings. You see what I'm saying? Explaining, it's tempting, and it's not wrong for this to enter the conversation eventually so that everyone is heard and understood. But right out of the gate, nay, fucker, nay. First, the original speaker wants to be heard, and they are owed that human right because they put in the work to make this vulnerable conversation take place. Your damn ego needs to be okay with just sitting down for a second to allow that to happen. Then you can speak to your side of things. Make sense? Great. And on that note, last one. Number 10. Correcting, as in... That's not how that happened. 
Okay, this one is very close to explaining. Correcting is another attempt to convince the discloser not to feel how they feel or even to finish the thought that they were about to unravel with us, which teaches the receiver not to bother speaking. Their version of reality is never going to be accepted, so anything that they say is a moot point before they even try to speak. And, of course, again, it makes sense that people would respond this way. We all deserve to be seen and comprehended accurately. It is all of our rights. No one enjoys hearing fairy tales about themselves, and it tracks in this crew that many of us learned to jump to defending ourselves and our experience of the material world as quickly as possible because we came from families who love to make up stories, love to kind of skew reality in a way that helps them, and love to assign blame in accordance with their big scary emotions that they can't handle themselves. So yeah, after all of that, we are sensitive to fake news and projections being laid upon us. We want to nip them in the bud ASAP before they blossom into something even worse. But it's not helpful to the other party or to your relationship to assume that this person is continually trying to pull one over on you with fake facts. If they are wired that way, that is what they're commonly doing, then uh, this might be a sign that they're a little too similar to the family tree in the emotional dysregulation and internal disintegration aspects to be meeting you where you are at right now. If you genuinely have to treat them like they are your family, you need to reconsider reality with them on a regular basis. It sounds like there might be bigger problems at hand, like breaks from reality and sincere attempts at manipulation. So, if you are on the lookout for major factual falsities, this is going to be a long journey with the other individual. And I do feel for you. But also, yada yada yada, I would consider how you want to approach that relationship, not each individual conversation and response within it. But that's a whole other story. The point here is correcting people when they are coming to you with a vulnerable disclosure is another way of shutting them the fuck down. If you could just pause with your corrections and let them finish expressing themselves, that's a lot more beneficial. And with that, let's wrap this episode that got way, way, way too long, even on my second time through. Time to wrap. So, my fuckers, there are the at least 10 ways of responding that do not help in vulnerable, nonviolent conversations. Hint, I have a lot more. They were, number one, advising. I think you should. How come you didn't? Number two, one-upping. That's nothing. Wait till you hear what happened to me. Number three, educating. 
Do you know what that is? This could turn into a very positive experience for you if you just... Number four, consoling. It wasn't your fault. You did the best that you could. Number five, storytelling. That reminds me of the time. Number six, shutting down. Cheer up. Don't feel so bad. Don't think about it that way. Number seven, sympathizing. Oh, that is awful. You poor thing. Number eight, interrogating. What do you mean? When did this begin? Number nine, explaining. Well, I would have called, but... And number 10, correcting. That is not how it happened. But remember, nonviolent communication said, telling people what not to do doesn't really help because it doesn't tell them what to do. We need to present positive action suggestions and requests, not unsupported behavioral extinction plans. So, what to do about all of these not recommended responses to connective conversation, right? Well, fucker, you heard me mention over and over again, there weren't always bad intentions behind these bad responses. They were just symptomatic of not having emotional space and often executed poorly. In fact, Timing and consent could go a really long way in making them safe, healthy, and connective conversational options. Yeah? Well, yeah. Fittingly, that is what we're about to talk about in the next two weeks over on the Traumatized Motherfucker Mothership. That's at patreon.com slash traumatized motherfuckers. We'll be discussing how to turn these don'ts into do's by setting the stage correctly to take a good deal of pressure and defensiveness off the table. Keeping trauma brains in mind, how do we prepare for difficult conversations and how do we keep ourselves grounded throughout them so we remain conscious in our responses, so we can give responses rather than these pre-programmed reactions that are often very defensive. That is the next set of shows coming down the chute as we keep ramping up for the holidays. Plus, we also went into so much goddamn detail on these not recommended tactics, including rolling them into Thanksgiving examples, that these 10 don't do's clocked in at about three hours of discussion. So, if these things sounded similar and you wanted a little more validation that they suck, if you're still feeling unclear on why people answer in these ways, maybe including yourself, or you're still wondering why these replies hit so hard in the feels, there is a lot of discussion left for you. Such as how to respond in a different way if you're inclined towards any of these pain points, and how to redirect the conversation back to a helpful place if someone does throw these shit answers at you. Plus, how to possibly navigate some pushy family dynamics with nonviolent communication this holiday season. 
Yeah, those episodes exist. They might be for you. And they also might be for the shitty communicators all around you who could learn a thing or two about how they are received despite their best intentions. These shows are for them too. And with that, my fuckers, I bid you a happy fucking start to the holiday season. I am sorry that it is so early. I feel like a big box store over here playing Mariah in September. But also, it's never too soon to start practicing before you are actually in the presence of the intergenerational family slap known as Spanksgiving round these parts. So, just some reminders. Remember the four steps of nonviolent communication. Separate your observations from your evaluations. Don't be a judgy asshole. Name and own your emotions behind those judgments. They do belong to you, and no one is, quote, causing them. Discover the unmet needs that are driving those shitty feelings. You're probably in a state of deprivation. And make a request, not a demand, to your partner with opportunity for clarification and discussion afterwards. Slash, remember that they have the option to say, no, they can't do that. Also, slow down your responses so they are not trauma-programmed, defensive reactions. Recognize the intention and the goal behind what is being expressed, and stay in line with those self-standards so that you are living in alignment. When you notice big emotions or none emotions inside of yourself, go ahead and take a goddamn break to reconnect with yourself, big S, before you continue the conversation. And when in doubt, just ask people what they really need, what they're open to receiving, and what would be helpful for, helpful for them right now. All the while, of course, being mindful of your own boundaries, your self-rules about what you will and won't accept or engage with in order to keep you showing up as the best, most balanced, most expansive, emotionally clear, and need-fulfilled version of you. And that's it. I'll see you on the other side of these family shit shows. I'm just kidding. There will be a holiday special or several before then. And I'll see you there, fuckers. Until then, hail your damn self. And cheers. I think you got it this year. Bye-bye. Check, 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 check. Let's see if you record anything other than <laughs> today. <laughs>